Evening, everyone. My name is JJ. I'm one of the ministers here at Northmead. It's great to see you all here as we come to look at this great part of God's Word. We're back in the Gospel of Mark, looking at the idea of the King's Cross. Uh, and as we come to look at God's Word, how about I pray that He will be with us as we do that? Let's talk to God. Our great God, we thank you so much for your wonderful Word. We do pray that we would delight in it, that we would love it, that we'll be changed by what you have to say. Help us to take it to heart. And live all the more for you, knowing you are the great King who saved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how much something is worth is seen in what you are willing to give up for it. Uh, a survey was done in the 1980s of elite athletes by a guy called Robert Goldman. And he asked them this question If you could take a drug that would guarantee them overwhelming success in their chosen sport, but cause them to die five years later, would they? And approximately half of them answered, yes. These professional athletes would be willing to give up their lives for the chance of success in sport. Winning, success, being the very best, was absolutely everything to them. It was worth everything to them, even if it meant they would lose their life. How much something is worth is seen in what you are willing to give up for it. And that is what we're thinking about tonight. How much is Jesus' death worth to you? As we come to Mark chapter 14, that is the question God is putting to us. We're now in the final section of Mark's gospel. We're heading towards the climax of the book. We're heading towards Jesus' death. Now in this passage, it's just a couple of days before Jesus is crucified. And he's having dinner with the 12 disciples in the house of Simon the leper. Something just flew into my hair. I'm not sure what it was. Uh, Simon the leper. But then the dinner is kind of interrupted by this woman whose actions just seem over the top, extravagant and kind of full on. But the reason Mark tells us about this woman is because her response to Jesus' upcoming death is the right response. Really, it is the only response we should have. We see this extravagant response to Jesus who is about to die. And as a church, as Christians, we really should ask ourselves if we adore Jesus like this woman. We need to be challenged to think if there is anything in our lives that we value more than Jesus Christ himself. And so let's have a look at the passage. First point there, adore your dying king. Look at verse 3. While he was still in Bethany at the house of Simon, who had a serious skin disease, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of pure and expensive fragrant oil of nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. I've heard that at the height of his success, Sir Elton John was spending over £250,000 a month on flowers. 250,000 uh, pounds a month on flowers. I don't mind a good flower myself, but that is ridiculous. Uh, he later admitted it was a little over the top what he was doing. I'm sure you would agree. In fact, it's kind of laughable that he was spending that much on flowers. Until you put it next to the needs of the very poorest in our world. Then what he was doing is disgusting. In isolation, that is the kind of awful extravagance of this woman's action. 
In today's world, the perfume that she poured out was worth a year's wages. So it's worth about $85,000. All wasted on one over-the-top gesture. And I think we can kind of be sympathetic to the response of those who are looking on. Verse 4. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this fragrant oil been wasted? For the oil might have been sold for more than 300 nanari and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. You see, on the surface, it seems just like such a waste. But look at Jesus' response to their rebuke of this woman. Jesus says to the woman, what she has done is right, and not just right, but it's good. What on the surface seems wasteful and reckless is in fact the right response, says Jesus. Verse 6, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. So it's not that Jesus thinks that caring for the poor isn't important. You just need to read the Gospels and you know that is not the case. But Jesus says at this moment, there is something more important. Something that this woman gets about his death that makes what she is doing completely right. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. You see, this woman's action isn't, um, isn't isolated, but it's leading up to Jesus' death. And she understood that somehow. This woman has grasped how precious Jesus' death is. This death that is just days away. How much is Jesus' death worth to her? Well, it's worth more than this perfume that is equivalent to a year's wages. In fact, it's worth more than anything to her in this world. This woman really does adore her dying king and she shows it. Jesus' death is approaching and she's helping him prepare for it, no matter what the personal cost to her. And what we see here is that worship is costly. And I've got to say, that is something that we find so hard to grasp as Western Christians. We so often take the gathering of God's people lightly. We will only go to church when it's easy. If the church is near, if the band is red hot, if the preacher is amazing, if the weather isn't bad, if the parking is close, if I don't have something else booked in or my favorite band isn't playing that night, if it's a time that suits my lifestyle, how much is Jesus' death worth to you? And just compare this woman's response with Judas, who was one of the twelve. Here's a man who spent three years with Jesus, hearing him teach, watching him heal the lame, the deaf, the mute, and the blind. He's seen Jesus cast out demons, calm storms, feed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. Judas has seen the power of Jesus. He is his friend, the king of Israel, and he is willing to give him up. He's willing to portray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So that's what Jesus is worth to him. That's what Jesus' death is worth to Judas. And this is one of the parts that I think I find really challenging. How much would it cost for me to portray Jesus? How much would it cost for you 
to betray Jesus? What is your price? Well, the acceptance on social media or in the workplace, a relationship with a guy or a girl that you know is detrimental to your relationship with Christ, your degree, your career, your friends, your house, what is it? But if worship, real worship, means effort and cost and sacrifice, then I think too often we are disinclined to make it. But this woman gave all she had. And the question for us is, how much is Jesus' death worth to you? But what does this woman get? What does this woman understand about Jesus' death that the others haven't? Well, that's what Jesus shows us in the second feast in tonight's passage, in verses 12 to 26. She gets that Jesus is dying for her. You see, we should adore our dying king because he died for you. And really, the key to understand Jesus' death in Mark's, in this part of Mark, is the repeated mention that Mark gives us of the Passover. It's mentioned four times in this passage. And now the first Passover happened more than a thousand years before Jesus' death. Israel was slaves in Egypt. And after sending nine terrible plagues against Egypt and Pharaoh to free his people, God sends the worst one of all, a plague against the firstborn son in all the land. And every night, every home that night, whether Jew or Egyptian, God's wrath will be poured out. And there would be a death. The angel of death would not simply pass over the Israelites just because they were God's people. Everyone in the land deserved judgment for sin. And really, the only way for any family to escape was to put their trust in God's promise and provision. And so what God said to do is they were to take a lamb. And the lamb was to be killed instead of the firstborn son. And the blood of the lamb was to be painted on the door sills and the windows. And every home in Egypt that night, God's judgment will come against. And it needed to be satisfied either by the death of a firstborn son or the death of a lamb. And if the lamb had died, if the blood was painted, it meant that house, it was passed over. And so Jesus really celebrating the Passover as a Jew is nothing really that extraordinary. He was doing something that Jews had been doing for centuries. But here, Jesus reinterprets the entire event in light of himself. And so he takes some bread. Nothing unusual. But after taking that bread, he changes everything and he said, take it. This is my body. And then he does the same with the wine. Normal thing, gives thanks. But then he goes off script again. Verse 24, this is my blood that establishes the covenant It is shed for many. See, Jesus in this moment turns all of Israel's history upside down. He's saying God's original Passover rescue was leading to this moment. Everything that had happened in Egypt was just a shadow of this reality that was coming. Because in a few hours, my body will be broken like this bread. Soon, my blood will be poured out like this wine. This is what the Passover was all about, he's saying. Jesus is saying, I go to my death as your sacrifice, as your substitute. I am the last and the true Passover lamb. Jesus says, this is the true exodus you have been waiting for. And in the end, this explanation makes sense of the woman's actions early in the chapter, doesn't it? 
You see, she gets it. She gets that she needed to be rescued. And in Mark's gospel, he makes it very clear that everybody, all humanity, needs to be rescued. In chapters 8 to 10, he makes that extremely clear. In this chapter, he gives us two contrasting pictures. On the one hand, Jesus gives these extraordinary standards of those who would enter into his kingdom. He says, you've got to give up everything and follow me. You've got to be perfect and live your life entirely for me. And the disciples, they fail to get this time and time again. They fail to approach anything that really looks like true obedience to Jesus. But then we meet this man in chapter 10. A man who is really the best humanity has to offer. And so maybe the disciples don't get it because they're just a bit backwards. They're kind of rural types, thick and average, the sort of New Zealanders off their time or something like that. It's a bit cheap, but it's true. Uh, there's nothing that, it's not a surprise that the outcome with the disciples was they would fail when he's working with such raw, terrible material. But not this man in chapter 10 that we meet. Now he's rich, religious, and morally upright. If there was anyone in history who could please God, this is the guy. But just like the disciples, he fails. He can't reach God's standards. The disciples can't believe it. And they're like, if this guy can't please you, if this guy can't get into the kingdom of heaven, then who can? And Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. And here and now, Jesus says, I am making the impossible possible. And that's what the woman got. She knew that she was an object of God's wrath. She knew she was guilty before God. She was full of all sorts of sin and shame and lies and pride. She knew that her life was a record of guilt that could just not be ignored. But here is her king. Her king who is heading to his death as her very own Passover lamb. And that's why she's willing to give so much. Because of him, and only because of him, she goes from definite wrath to definite rescue. And that's what those who rebuked her just didn't get. See, the families in the original Exodus, they would have gotten it. They would have been terrified in their homes that night, scared as they waited for the coming of the angel of death to take a life. And this reality was facing everyone in Simon's house that night. They didn't realize it, but they should have been terrified. That was the reality in the room as Jesus speaks to his disciples the night before his death. The judgment of God was looming over them. The sword was ready to fall and Jesus was about to do the only thing that could provide shelter for them. And that's the reality for everyone in this room tonight. Without our Passover lamb, without Jesus' sacrifice, God's judgment will be all that awaits us. But now there is hope. Take my body, says Jesus. This is my blood of the covenant. It is for you and for your protection. If only we could properly grasp the invisible realities, then we would be truly devoted to Jesus like this woman in Mark chapter 14. Without Christ's blood painted on the doors of our souls, we are utterly lost. 
But his death means we go from wrath to rescue. But more than that, says Jesus, it means you guys go from beggars to beloved. And that's what we see in verse 25. He says, I assure you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it in a new way in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is saying, my rescue isn't just from judgment. My rescue opens up the gates of heaven, the gates of God's kingdom itself. And Jesus is saying the kingdom, it is almost here. The kingdom that he announced all the way back at the start of the gospel, he says, it's about to be here as I go to my death on the cross, as I go to die. See, Jesus often describes his kingdom as an awesome feast, this epic banquet where only the best and choice wine is served. And that's what he's talking about here. And the woman gets it. That without Jesus, she is nothing. She will be shut out of the kingdom. But not anymore. And Jesus promises her, and Jesus promises us, if we trust in him, then we too will enjoy and belong to this kingdom. Jesus says, after his death and resurrection, I will enter my kingdom, but I won't be alone this time. I will take you to be with me. And so back to the question I started with. How much is Jesus' death worth to you? Jesus' explanation of his own death makes sense of the woman's actions in this passage. What it seemed at first, this kind of over-the-top, extravagant gesture, really is the only proper response to the value of Jesus' death. See, how do we value Jesus' death? Because God wants more from us at 6.45 than just to be believers in our mind. God wants us to adore him, to be full on, passionate and have an extravagant devotion to him above everything else in this world. And that will only come when we realize what we have actually been saved from. I need to answer this question. How much is Jesus' death worth to me? Do I treasure him more than anything else in this world? See, there are people here whose job it is to figure out the value of things. We saw Dan have a go of it. He's not very good. But there's other people here who are very good at it. Uh, they, they figure out the value of stock or insurance policies or property, something like that. Giving the right value to certain things matters. And that's what we're talking about in these verses. What is the true value of Jesus' death? You see... What in your life is whole, are you holding on to that you value more than Jesus? Maybe it's an ambition. Maybe it's some secret sin that you really don't want any of us to know about. A relationship, my own reputation in the world. Jesus says it is worthless in comparison to his death. And none of it can save you from God's judgment. And if we get that, that will change our lives. It will mean our ministry here that happens at Northmead will go from duty to delight. It will go from, oh, I have to because I should, to I want to because it is the greatest privilege in the world to serve my King who died for me. Wholehearted, passionate, extravagant devotion to Jesus and the message of his death. The one thing that is more valuable than everything else we put value on in this world. But how's this going to happen? What happens is we come to God's word 
and we ask him to open our darkened eyes so we can see reality for what it actually is, to see the true value of the only thing that matters in this world. See, everything in this world the world tells us to value and cherish is all wispy vapor compared to this one thing. There is nothing else in the world that is worth our devotion and worship. But can I say, we can only truly worship Jesus if we love him more than all the other other little gods in our life. So you and I need to see the beauty of Christ so clearly that it displaces the love that we have for other gods. So that they lose their hold over us. Jesus must become more desirable to you and more attractive to you than the idols in your life. You need to see that he gave up his life so that you could go free. He went thirsty so that you could be satisfied. He gave up his life so you could live forever. The eternal son of God took on flesh once and for all. Took your place once and for all. Suffering on the cross, the hell that we deserve so that we don't have to. So worship your dying king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for our wonderful King, our King who loved us so much that he would not hold on to his life, but give it freely so that we could know you and be known by you forever. And we pray that we would indeed worship him, not just with our minds, but with every part of who we are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.